Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Mm, all over the world, people are saying that in gazillions of different languages. Um, let me give you a quote from someone famous. Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Who said that? Yeah, yeah, well done. Okay. <laughs> uh, some of you will have heard of this weird but wonderful thing from um, the, the sort of Middle Ages where the church had had this thing called the Rhesus Pascalis where it was Easter laughter and it was expected that the minister of your church, the priest, would begin uh, the service or his sermon with a joke. And the idea was it was, to, it was to indicate that we've moved into a whole new season. Good Friday is fairly solemn. It's wonderful, deeply wonderful, but fairly solemn. And some people have spent the 40 days of Lent, fasting and stuff. So you start this Easter celebration with a joke. And we actually have heard that some of the jokes from some of the priests got a bit rowdy. And um, some of them were really bad. And some parishes wrote to their bishops complaining that their priest was a disappointment when it came to the Easter laughter. So I thought I'd join that proud tradition. Uh, we're dealing with death and the possibility that there may be something after that with the resurrection. The story is told of a man who'd been on a long jet flight, came home, jumped into a taxi and uh, gave the instructions of where he wanted to go and then fell asleep. <clears throat> He woke up uh, a little bit further along the trip and realised that the taxi driver was going in the completely wrong direction. So he reached across and, and tapped him on the shoulder, at which point the taxi driver completely freaked out and, and yelled and squawked and lost control of the vehicle, nearly had an accident and finally pulled over. And the, the, the passenger said, look, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. He said, no, no, I'm really, really sorry too. This is my first day as a taxi driver. I've spent 30 years driving a hearse. <laughs> and so, um, because we all know that when you're dead, you're dead and nothing like that's going to happen. I am the living one. I was dead, Jesus says. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us to only believe things that are true uh, to use the brains that you've given us to assess and to, to work things out, to trade in untruths that we may have believed, half-truths, myths, legends, uh, that we may know those things that are true and honour you by loving you with our brains and with the whole of our lives. Amen. Three words in Mark 16, verse 6. He has risen. He has risen. Now, is that true or is that simply a lie? Some people might say it's a nice lie. I'm not sure if it is a nice lie. The trouble that that statement has caused, the joy it's caused, but the trouble it's brought as well, is huge. Many hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of people have died for that statement, because they believed it's true, 
that Christ rose from the dead, no matter what people did to them. Is it fake news or is it serious but good and happy news? Professor Josh McDowell wrote this. He said, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on the minds of human beings, or it is the most remarkable fact of history. And I think he's right. It is one or the other. It's not a nice myth. It's either true or false. As uh, Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician, said, the disciples of Jesus were either deceived or deceivers, or it's true. Well, let's have a look at Mark 16. And frankly, if I was trying to prove that, that uh, the resurrection was, was well-based and good evidence, Mark would not be the gospel I'd go to. Uh, Matthew, Luke and John have more substance, more stories, more evidence, more dealing with the counter-possibilities than Mark. Mark is very brief, eight verses. And as you may have noticed when it was read, there's no account of Jesus appearing to anybody. There's a promise that he will very soon after it. Uh, it's a very unusual uh, part to go to, but we're doing it partly because we're working our way through Mark's gospel, aren't we? And this is the end, Mark 16. So let's have a look at these. And uh, today's sermon is brought to you by the letter R. <coughs> okay. So firstly, we're looking at someone who has risen. When my second-born uh, daughter uh, was born, I rang up a very good mate of mine. And, and he said, what are you calling him? We said, Rose. And he said to me, that's a very Easter name, isn't it? And I went, I mean, I'd been up all night. I think I got it about three days later. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, Rose, yeah. Uh, but the statement here is, he has risen. Now, this is the backbone of Christianity. We, we mentioned on a Good Friday that like Araldite, Christianity has tube A and tube B. The cross of Good Friday, wonderfully important. And the resurrection of the Sunday is B. And those two things together make this magnificently powerful message that has been changing lives for thousands of years. The he is risen is the backbone of it all. It's not like the caboose that's ended to sort of finish a, sort of a sad story or like an epilogue that you could do without. It really is the climax and the destination of the whole thing. If this ain't true, the whole story is rubbish. And what we're doing here is at least a waste of time, perhaps worse. Um, the, the early Christians saw this. There's a hard-headedness about real Christianity. So Jesus himself gets asked uh, twice that we have recorded, give us proof that you are who you say you are. Both times... In Matthew and John, he refers to his resurrection. That'll be the proof, he says. And the Apostle Paul, who was the first murderer of Christians, the first organiser of persecutions, and met the risen, risen Jesus, says in 1 Corinthians 15, written about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, we are of all humans the most pitiable. If Christ has not been raised, he says... Your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, he says, we are liars about God. 
You see the clarity he's saying there? The whole thing is a lie. The whole thing is a waste of time. It's useless if it's not true, if Christ did not leave that tomb. And this here, we have a messenger in the tomb of Jesus saying, he has risen. Now he says it to the women. Uh, what you might have noticed as you listen to it is that the, we have these women are mentioned at the cross, at the burial, and here at the empty tomb. And people have rightly noted that at this point the men have been marked failures. Uh, perhaps John was at the cross. Or I think John was at the cross because of one interaction. But all the other disciples are hiding. And when the women finally find the men on Resurrection Sunday, they're in a locked room. They're not out doing anything other than trying to stay safe. And the women are the only ones out publicly identifying with Jesus. Now, in the end, I'm sorry to say this, uh, but in the end, the women nearly... Well, they don't finish up as bad as the blokes, but they do finish up uh, not doing too well uh, in the short term. But it's the women who go... And this is one of the things I know when I first became a Christian, I, I remember hearing people say this, it made no sense because I really had no understanding of the... or not much understanding of the history of the times. I mentioned a man called Celsus uh, the other week. Celsus was a, a, a Greek philosopher who hated Christianity and studied it to attack it. And he wrote a book uh, outlining why he thought Christianity was rubbish. And uh, one of the things he says is, it is based on the gossip of women. Right? Uh, there's, a, there's a general... It, it varied on what part of the Roman Empire, but generally speaking, if your only witnesses were women, your case was in trouble. In some parts of it, women couldn't even witness in court. But it's a bit like you know, making up a story and having four-year-olds as your key witnesses or Scott and Albo or something like that, other disreputable, so that you've got... But, you know, you, no one making up a story makes the key witnesses women in that culture. It's an embarrassment, and it was used against the Christians that the key witnesses were women. But they're heading off to the tomb, not, not thinking there's been a resurrection, but just as you might go to deliver flowers to uh, the, the grave of someone that you love. And they have a moment where they suddenly remember, oh, hang on. There's a rock at the front of that tomb. We've, we've dug up, we, we can visit those sorts of things where they use a, a round rock as a sort of a, a doorway to the... It, it's openable, but it takes work and it makes noise, so it's hard to sneak in. They probably weighed about as much as a Toyota Camry, only the wheels were not rubber. And so the women suddenly, oh, how are we going to get in? We've got these spices to finish the Jewish burial program. And they get there, and as you heard, the stone has already been moved... And so they go, they go and have a look. It wasn't, I don't think it was removed um, to let Jesus out so much as to let people in to have a look. They go in and they have a conversation, or they don't. They listen to this young man who's there, who most people rightly say is almost certainly an angel, which just means a messenger. And here's his message. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. That's helpful. He indicates he knows what they're there for. They're looking for Jesus. The two features of him we're told is he's from Nazareth and he was crucified. This is very much like the creed we just said. People get, sometimes people get upset about the creed because it says, you know, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, and, hang on, hang on, hang on. What about, what about his teaching and what about his fine, moral, inspiring life, blah, blah, blah. But the, the apostles are doing exactly as the messenger did. Where's he from? What's he do? What's the main thing he does? Crucified. Because as you know, 
He came to die. I'm like you. You're not born to die. You're born to live, and yet sadly you do die. But Jesus was born to die, he says. He was crucified. So the messenger knows why they're there. And what's the next thing? Crucified, risen. He has risen. Now, as you probably know, in order to become an Anglican minister, you've got to have some grip on the original language Greek. The good news is it's almost completely a waste of time because when you read it, you look at the English, it's all there in English anyhow. But sometimes it's just, I was just struck when I had a look at the Greek that it's got the word, he was crucified. The next word is risen. And uh, so it's, it's sort of, it, it's just very blunt. The crucified one is the risen one. These are the two things to know about Jesus. Both are true historically. They both happened. And what the angel says or the messenger says is, you're going to see him. Go back and tell the disciples that you'll see him in Galilee. He's going ahead of you. And the word is actually, the going ahead of is actually the word that would be used of a military leader. He's going ahead of you and meet you there in Galilee. And that's where you'll see him. That's where the rendezvous will happen. Now, all the other Gospels have accounts of Jesus meeting the disciples. People didn't become believers in the resurrection because the tomb was empty, but it's a very important part of it. Because when it says he's risen, it doesn't mean that he has a spiritual influence on people. It means that the, the word resurrection literally means the standing up. It's the standing up of the corpse. It's crystal clear it's not a sort of ongoing spiritual influence because it says, the messenger says, he is risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. The body has gone. You may not like that. You may not be interested in that. You may think that's a bit creepy, but God is absolutely committed to his creation. And the future is not floating in heaven. The future that the Bible promises is a new body in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is the first fruits. That's where he's gone. There will be a meeting there. So, Jesus is risen. Or as he, is it just a filthy lie? Hmm. I read this week that the shortest sermon... See, I, I try, I try. <laughs> the heading was, Killing Jesus. The sermon went, Didn't work. <laughs> uh, that's pretty short, to the point. Although, to, to be fair, if, you, if, the sermon, if the sermon title was, Getting Rid of Jesus, you could say it didn't work. But the killing worked. He did really die. Uh, the Romans killed hundreds of thousands of people by crucifixion. They killed so many Jews outside Jerusalem one time that there were no trees left. They, it, just, it, was just, it was just a nightmare. In fact, the reason why there are no trees in parts of Israel still are because the Romans cut down so many of them to crucify Jews. And yet, you can read some of the... Um, well, they used to be called the New Atheists. Some of them will say things like, the one thing we know about Jesus was he wasn't crucified. And a friend of mine said to him, well, how do we know that? Oh, the Jews didn't crucify, they stoned people. And you think, well done, genius, right? <laughs> the Jews were the most crucified people in the Roman Empire, the head of population. And it's what the Romans did to you, not, not what the Jews did to you. Jesus was well and truly crucified. But some people say, well, so what if he did was crucified and he rose again from the dead? I've found people say the same thing in the same book. They'll say, so what? Who cares? And then they'll say, can't be done, it's impossible. And, and they don't realise that those two things are very closely linked. It matters because it's impossible. 
Because the one thing we know about you and everyone who you love and care about, everyone famous and worthwhile, whether they be Shane Warne or Stephen Hawking or my sister or whatever it is, they die. And so people say, no, no one can come back from the dead. Absolutely the case. The one thing we know about is we all get over... In the end, we all get beaten up by death. That's why we don't talk about it in our culture, because we've got no answer for it. But what this is saying is, no, 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 there's one person who said he would defeat death and then has left us very, very good evidence that he did. And I'm not meaning to be rude in any way, shape or form in this, but there is simply no one else who makes the claim... Jews don't suggest that Moses defeated death. Muslims don't suggest that Muhammad defeated death. Buddhists don't suggest that the Buddha defeated death. It's actually a very unusual claim. And there's very strong evidence for it. In fact, if you've never had a chance to look at the evidence, and we'll have at, at a couple of the doors, there'll be these things lying around. Now, there's much better pieces than this, but this is a good introduction to the sort of reason why so many people have taken the view, in fact, quite a few have sat down to write a book showing that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. And in the end, uh, I was reading one yesterday, last night, and that starts off with this chapter of the book that would never be written. Because when he finally went and looked at the evidence, he just found it overwhelming. It's not very strong evidence if you haven't looked at it, right? which is what, true of most people. But you might like to take one of those if you haven't had a chance. If you come to his church regularly, um, don't bother taking one and we'll, pr we'll print them again for next week so you can take one there. But particularly if you're a guest, if you haven't had a chance, love you to take it. He is risen. Either that or the whole of Christianity is a filthy lie. Secondly, R. The risen one is ruthful. Now, there are some underused words. For example, gruntled. I'm feeling pretty gruntled this morning. I don't know if you're gruntled. Are you feeling gruntled or are you feeling disgruntled? Right? Ruthful, merciful, kind. The opposite of being ruthless. It's where you don't give someone what they deserve if it's bad and punishment. It's mercy. And Jesus, we see here, the risen Jesus, even at the moment of his great display of power as he comes back and overpowers death, is thinking of small people and is thinking of people who need mercy. He's thinking of his utter, total failure, all his disciples. So what he says is this. The, the messenger, who's, the messenger doesn't, wake, doesn't make up this message himself. He's a messenger. He's given the message by Jesus and he delivers it. Don't be alarmed, he says. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples Peter, and Peter... He's going ahead of you into Galilee. So the women become like the angel. They're given the message to take to pass on. They're to go to the disciples. Now remember, if you've been, get, been with us and studying Mark, the disciples are a, they're an abysmal bunch. You know, Jesus talks about his death, so they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. It's just awful how slow they are, how much like me they are, really. You know, appallingly egocentric in the face of beautiful things. So Tim Keller, the wonderful Presbyterian from America, says this about this. He said, it's interesting that Jesus, what he could have said was this. You go and tell the disciples, those arrogant, boastful, egocentric, ambitious, cowardly backstabbers, <laughs> that if they'll really get on their knees and repent, I might meet them in Galilee. Right? He really could have easily said, you are kidding 
Not a one of them stood by him. All of them ran. Right? And yet Jesus' first thoughts are, tell my, tell my friends, they're still, you know, he's got every grounds to say, it's over. Right? And he, the part I particularly love are the two words. In fact, these words, I think, are some of the more beautiful words in the gospel. What the angel says is this, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Why, why, why not and John? Why, why, why does Peter get a special mention? Go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Well, you know the thing with Peter is that there's this dialogue that goes on between Jesus and Peter on the last day where Peter says, Jesus says, you will all desert me. And Peter stands up and says, they may, I won't. I'll die for you. They're a pretty scummy bunch. I'm not even sure why you chose them, Jesus. But I, I won't. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you will. Before the cock has crowed three times, you will deny me three times. He gets the warning and he still argues with Jesus. He's still correcting Jesus. And remember what, what this denying Jesus publicly is a big deal according to Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. If you're not willing to own your relationship with me, don't expect me to own my relationship with you on the judgment day. It's a pretty so Peter has committed an A grade sin twice, three times on the one night, despite being forearmed and warned. And yet Jesus wants to make sure that Peter's there. Because you can imagine if they hear the news, and Peter would quite rightly go, You go, fellas, I'm I'm clearly not part of this team anymore. I'm out. You know, I've I've really blown it. So you you go, good luck to you. These cards. Are not, these are not used often enough by referees against New Zealand, whose breakaways are always cheating. Right? It's amazing how, how rarely they get used. Um, that's ten minutes, off you go, you vile cheat. This is, the one, this is the one you don't want to get, isn't it? The red card. That means you're gone for the rest of the game. Uh, and I, I want to suggest to you that, that the reason why Jesus says, tell my disciples and Peter... It's because Peter would almost certainly have red-carded himself and said, I'm just, I'm clearly not in this group anymore. You can't do what I've done and consider yourself Christian. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus is not allowing Peter to red-card himself. He's completely aware of how, how weak Peter was in spite of so many warnings from Jesus. And yet Jesus sends his says to the angel to tell the women, tell Peter, I want to see him. I want him to be there and I want to reveal myself to him. We do have a tendency sometimes to take our sin more seriously than we might take the grace and mercy of God. That's right to take our sin seriously. But your sin is never anywhere near as big as the mercy and love of God. We keep repenting here. Where sin abounds, God's grace superabounds, is what the Bible says. The risen one is full of Ruth. He's ruthful, which is beautiful. Another R, you're saying, please give us more R's. The risen, ruthful one is a rock. This is good news. The messenger says, go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, there you'll see him, just as he told you. Now, he doesn't need to say those last few words, does he? It doesn't add anything in terms of directions. 
but it does say something very wonderful. Just as he told you. The messenger wants to say to the, the women and then to the disciples, he's just doing what he told you beforehand. If you had listened to what he said, you would have saved yourself an enormous amount of pain and confusion. Jesus is a man of his word. He does as he said, even if no one believes him. And none of the disciples did. Interestingly enough, according to Matthew's gospel that we're not looking at today, Matthew has at least the high priest, the people who had him put to death, they had heard him and taken him seriously and they asked for the guard on the tomb because they were worried, not that he'd rise, they thought he's just a liar, but they thought his disciples might try and nick it. But none of the, none of the disciples seemed to go, ah, he did say we'd come to Jerusalem, he'd be handed over, he'd be put on trial, he'd be executed, but on the third day rise again. Maybe we should go and have a look at the tomb, do you reckon? Let's just go for our morning walk, at least near the tomb. And have a look. None of them did, because none of them took his word seriously. Everything he said about them being so powerful and yet dying just seemed so weird. So they didn't take the, the, the repeated promise. You can read it in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. Well, Jesus will tell you exactly what he's going to do. But the angels want to under He told you this. He is only doing as he told you. He will keep his promise. He never makes a big promise and doesn't keep it. He always keeps his promise. In fact, he does more than keep his promise. Kerry Packer is not one of my heroes. Um, but he, the one statement he did make that I thought was wonderful is he said, he sought to under-promise and over-deliver. Now, I've got no idea if that's true. Where you, you promise less than you think you'll deliver and you try to make sure that you give more than you promised. Right? That is exactly what Jesus does. He says, I'll meet you in Galilee but he also meets them in Jerusalem. He doesn't, I don't know, he, almost, he couldn't wait to see them. But, he, but they, do, they do meet him in Galilee. They have a number of times when they meet him in Galilee, up north. But he comes to them here, right, on that night and then at least for one other week. So Jesus over-promises, or over, whoops, no, that's me. He over-delivers. You can absolutely trust Jesus' word, and I wonder if you do. I'm not asking, do you go to church? Or this nonsense I hear again and again. I don't mean to be rude, but people say, I really have a respect for, for Jesus. I mean, I, Elon Musk the other day was saying, and I thought, come on, ask him some more questions. Right? Because I think people actually hold Jesus in, in almost complete contempt. They do not, they don't care what he says. They don't read his teaching. Oh, he's a great moral teacher. I just have no need to learn anything. Right? It's, it's silly. But listen to what Jesus says about his own words. And these are the sorts of things Jesus says that you make and think, who is this guy? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. It's also recorded in, oh, sorry, in um, Mark 13. It's also recorded in Matthew 24. Who says this? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Just think about what he's saying. Heaven and earth will pass away. Well, not everyone believed that. We, modern science does, so I think that's, that's, that's probably the case. But they didn't back then. They tend to thought the universe was eternal, etc. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words never pass away. Who says that? You, have, you hear what... And it's an extraordinary sense of the power and the eternality of his words. This little man in Palestine. Right? It's true. His words are absolute, solid, enduring, eternally true. 
We save ourselves an enormous amount of pain and worry and fear if we cling to the promises Jesus makes. The real promises, not making up ones he doesn't make. Well, he's risen, he's ruthful, he's a rock. Don't bet against him, would you? Like, you know, he says he's going to come back. I wouldn't bet against Jesus' truthfulness. He said he would rise again, and he has. The last point is this. The risen, ruthful rock in this passage from the very beginning is in the business of recruiting people. They're reluctant. When he first meets the disciples, he doesn't just say, come and follow me, we're going to have some fun together. Come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He hints to them there's a, there's a calling there's a, in the recruitment. Here, the women are the first to hear the news because they, they're the ones at the tomb. Go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. So the women are given a job to do. Uh, and that, as, as you know, uh, Mary Magdalene was called, has been often called in the church the apostle to the apostles. In the end, she was the first one to take to them the message that he has risen and she'd seen him. But they get there a bit slowly. Now, I was trying to think, what is that sport where you jump off a high point with a rubber band attached to your ankle? Bungee jumping, that's the word, bungee jumping. I, I did bungee jumping once. Um, I'd been to a Christian conference and I thought it would be an exercise in... And I thought, I've got to make some big changes for the place I was at. I need to trust God. I'll do a trust exercise. And um, so I did it. I need to make a confession. The first time the person went three, two, one, jump, I didn't jump. <laughs> I nearly jumped. And it wasn't just because they had a funny New Zealand accent and that can't be trusted. But it was a long way down. And in the end... I did it because I was wearing my South Sydney jumper, so that gave me courage. <laughs> but the first couple of times I didn't do it. I nearly did it. Um, but I eventually did it. Now, I want to say that that's what happens with, these, with the women here. This is a bad ending to a gospel. The gospel of Mark clearly finishes at verse 8. There's, there's two or three other endings which people have added over the years because it looks like a weird place to finish. But all the best manuscripts finish at verse 8. And we can have that discussion, if you like, later on. Uh, but people thought, oh, there's something's missing, we'll add the end. Because there's no appearance of Jesus in it. And the women are told, great that you're here, gals, fantastic. Go and tell the boys, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone. Who knows about the resurrection of Jesus at this point? Well, God does, the devil does, Jesus does. The young man does. The women do. That's it. And the disciples would really, really like to know that he's risen. And they've, you know, they've been told to tell. The only people who know who've been told to tell. I don't blame them, frankly. If I can use an official term, just to use another silly word. They have been discombobulated. I checked that out. That's a real word. I can't work out how to say it properly. They've been discombobulated, these women. Uh, to be discombobulated means that you're, you're kind of so rattled by things you just can't function properly. You know? Uh, that discombobulated me. And I don't blame... Well, the women have gone through... If you just trace the emotional journey they've been coming up with Jesus and with the disciples, expecting one thing to happen, the disciples all abandoning Jesus and betraying him and Judas, who they knew, actually... 
doing what he did. And Jesus not just being killed but being tortured to death because that's what crucifixion is, being humiliated as the crucifixion was. I think they would have been emotionally shattered. They go to sort of finish the burial process and then someone's messed around with the tomb. It's no wonder they're shattered. And these words are very strong words. They're trembling and they're bewildered and they're afraid and they don't speak. If you've been reading through Mark's Gospel with us, it's the reverse of what happens so often, isn't it, where Jesus will say to someone who is healed, don't tell anyone. Shh. And one time with the, with the leper that he heals, he's very strong, the language Jesus uses. He basically says, shut up. Don't say anything. But they can't help themselves because something exciting and wonderful has happened. Here, in fact, even when Peter works out that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone. Not yet. Here, the women are told, tell him. He's risen. Death's been beaten. But they're so shattered, they just say nothing. Now, it's quite clear they changed their mind. Everyone who got who this gospel was written for and was probably written for the Christians in Rome. That's the sort of general consensus, doesn't matter much, but they would have all known that Jesus had risen from the dead, that it appeared to the disciples, because that was the message that the disciples took out. You killed him, God raised him, we've seen him. That's why we know he's Lord. But here the women are told to speak, and for the, at first they don't, and I take it they repent, like I did when I was about to bungee jump. Eventually, eventually I did what I was gently told to do. So I think that's what they did. But it's helpful, I think what... The reason Mark records this bit of the story is because that is always the temptation for Christians. Okay, we get the fact he's risen. And forgiveness is on offer. And, and you can actually know Jesus in the present tense, not just admire a great dead guy, but actually get to know him as a living presence in our lives. But we're tempted to be silent. Instead of answering people, chatting with a lady as, as she left church on Sunday and she was saying that she'd had a conversation at her workplace with the gov a government agency and she said, and the people say, now, you know, Easter's a pretty solemn time for Christians and, and she said, well, Easter, you know, Good Friday is but on Easter Sunday we, we get pretty excited because Jesus has risen from the dead. She said there was a really odd feeling in the room. Ah, who's, someone's... Someone's talking nicely about Christianity. She's not, she, she thinks she'll still have a job on Monday. But, um, but, but she said she felt a bit nervous, but she simply just stated the obvious. It was, a, it was a natural thing to say in the conversation that Easter is not just Good Friday. It's also Resurrection Sunday. And she just shared it. And I think that's what we're being told here. This is the model. It don't, don't, don't be silenced because of fear. But as the apostles pray for, quite often pray for courage to open our mouths. Well, that's enough of the R's. So the risen, ruthful rock is recruiting. But the crucial thing is, he's risen. He's alive. Uh, just by way of conclusion, um, if you still are not sure if it's a lie, that is, it's fake news, or if it's true, there's very good evidence, and it's quite easy to have a look at and we just, I've just printed out these, um, these little leaflets. It's not the best leaflet, but it's, it's an easy one to read. It's a good introduction. There are whole books on, on the evidence for the resurrection. And they'll be at the front here if you leave that way. And out on the back, there's little tables with that. And do feel free to take one and have a read. It'll only take you, um, I don't know how long it'll take you, but it's not long. It's pretty short.
um, to have a bit of a think through that for yourself and work out if you think Jesus is lying and the early Christians are lying and the whole of Christianity is fundamentally a lie or whether or not it's actually the wonderful truth. He is risen. Secondly, if you are a person who says, yeah, I believe this, can I give yourself a chance to let this get into the, not just the head, which it grips first often, but then let it move into the heart because this is very exciting stuff. Very exciting. The death does not have the last word. There is a person who, when you go into death, will go with you and he will bring you out of it, as he did himself. He will give you the last word and the last laugh on death. Can I suggest, if you have Netflix, this is not an ad for Netflix, but if you have Netflix, there's a, there's a great movie to watch called Risen. Easy name to remember. Starts with R. Right? Risen. Uh, and it, it really deals with a lot of historical questions around the resurrection. Uh, I was, we, Alice and I were watching it again last night. I think we watched it a couple of years ago. I was surprised how good it was, frankly. Any Christian movie, you know, this would probably be made on a shoestring budget. But it, it's really quite good. Looking at the, the, the issues of the resurrection of Jesus. The other thing is, if, you, if you've got any access to music or you've got a record collection, to put, I've been listening maybe a, a dozen times this, this weekend to a Dolly Parton song. I must confess, this is the only time I listen to Dolly is at Easter. She has a wonderful song called He's Alive, which we watched actually here in church a couple of years ago. Do yourself a favour and get to listen to that. She just goes and she tells the story basically of Peter and the resurrection. It's not her song, but she sings it beautifully. Um, and, and with a great choir joins at the end. And it's just, you just get a sense of he's alive, he's alive. This is, the, this is the, the great reality. It's not fake news, it's real news. As Jesus says... I am the living one. I was dead. And now behold, I am alive forever and ever. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you're not a liar. You said you would go to Jerusalem and you would be crucified and rise again, and you did. Thank you for your patience with us. We were so hard of heart often. Uh, we do pray for those of us here who are not sure yet whether or not you've risen from the dead or not, whether or not Christianity is basically a lie or truth, please help them to, uh, to use their brains that you've given them to look and sift through the evidence that you've given to us. Lord, for all of us, we pray that we would not just agree with our heads that you are alive, but our hearts would sing along and know that you are the risen one. Uh, and we look forward to the day we will see you face to face. Amen.